0: Well, we have a lot of visitors, so I just want to start with, um, we're in a series on 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible and you want to open there with me, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Before we do that, though, let's pray to the Lord our God. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel and David and Abigail. I pray, Lord God, that as we consider uh, their lives today, their decisions, Lord, their obedience and their disobedience, that you would show us ourselves, that we would see ourselves more clearly, that we would see you more clearly, that we would um, become more faithful, more gracious, more loving, Lord, and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open the word to us now, that you give us understanding and insight and humility to receive what we learn there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Now literally, this, this sermon I'm preaching today, I, I just cut off the end of last week's sermon, and punted it a week. <laughs> so um, there's. I, I just jump right into the text, but I think it's important to just review where we're at. Uh, uh, you know, last Sunday was a long time ago, and there are some visitors. But the story we're looking at specifically is the story of David, who's hungry in the wilderness, comes to a man named Nabal, who's throwing a party, uh, and David asks for some food. Because it's a festival. You're supposed to give food when there's a festival going on. And David's men are in the wilderness. They have no way of coming up with their own food. Well, Nabal arrogantly and smugly tells them no, sends them packing. And so David decides to come and kill him and his whole household. And as it says in the King James, every man that pisseth against the wall. He's going to slaughter the whole house. And what saves him is his wise and prudent wife who sends food ahead of herself and then greets David in a very humble way, in, in, um, condemning her husband and saving the whole household. By putting herself forward as a sacrifice, she turns away the wrath of David. Jesus Christ turned away the wrath of God by sacrificing himself. We see in Abigail that the patriarchy isn't always exactly what we consider it. <laughs> Um, You know, in the New Testament, as as patriarchal modern Christians, it's kind of hard to understand how Abigail gets away with calling her husband a fool uh, when he's not even there, disobeying him behind his back. So if you're interested in that, that's what last week's sermon was about. Well, then what obviously happens is um, David's wrath is, in fact, turned away. He's well fed. And then God shows up and kills Nabal. And it it doesn't say that he died of natural causes. It says that God killed him. And and now what we're going to do is take up the story right from there. David's going to find out immediately that Nabal is dead. And this is how David responds in chapter 25, verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Now, David says that God struck Nabal in his head with his own evil. And back in verse 29, Abigail had said this, And the lives of your enemies... God shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now, taken together, we are reminded here of David's greatest military victory, the one in which he threw a rock and slew Goliath by striking his head. God God wants him to take that connection. It's important that David sees in this fight, just as in that fight previously when he gave all the recognition to God, that, that, that that situation is carrying on. It's still God who's striking down your enemies. You may just be a sling to me, David, but you're a sling that I'm using if you are obedient and if you follow me to slay the enemies of God. David does not seek to build his own kingdom, for Yahweh is building, or David does not need to seek to build his own kingdom, because Yahweh is building it. Calm down, David. Don't get so riled up. Don't re- return reviling with reviling. Don't return violence with violence, for the Lord God is building your house because I'm building my house, is what he's ta- He wants him to remember this. Now, way back in first Samuel thirteen fourteen, Samuel told this to Saul But now your kingdom shall not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the Lord the, the not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul had the kingdom taken away because he didn't follow God's blueprint. Now David is being tempted to grasp after the kingdom, to not follow God's blueprint, and have it taken away from him. And he needs to remember that he is the sling. He's not the stone. The Lord will strike down the enemies of his household, and he will do it through his children, and the children don't need to worry about doing it themselves. There is a blueprint in heaven, and God is building according to it, and nothing is outside of his purposes. Our times are in his hands, and this is what David needs to learn. David may hold the sling, but God directs the stone. David was cursed by Nabal, but the Lord knows how to defend his children. He always has. The Lord's building his own house, and David needs to stick to the blueprint. This is something that we need to hear still in our own day. He can't be distracted by insults. He can't be distracted by reviling. Now, if we go back to the beginning of this series, we remember that 1 Samuel is part of a larger Deuteronomistic history. That's what they call it. It was compiled from the annals of Israel to prove God's promises of blessing and cursing and restoration as recorded in Deuteronomy, right? God says a bunch of things in Deuteronomy. If this happens, this is what I'm going to do. If that happens, this is what I'm going to do. And if this happens, that's what I'm going to do. And so the later prophets took all the histories of Israel, and what they did is they created a history book that proves Deuteronomy actually took place. The things, right, that brought cursing brought cursing. Those things that would bring blessing actually brought blessing. And they did it for the sake of the exiles, because the exiles needed to know the truth of Deuteronomy. If you return to me, I will return to you. What we see in this, both in David's day, in the compiling of the history later, in our day now, is that God never tires of reminding us that he's got it. (laughs) That he says, do this and I will bless you. Do this and I will curse you. And finding out the difference and doing it is on us, right? That's on us. But whether the blessing or cursing comes, he's got it. He's going to do it. He will not be assuaged. He will not be turned aside. He will not stand idly. We all need to remember who God is. Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. He does, doesn't he? This word doesn't fall to the ground empty and feckless, does it? The Lord is never on the run. (laughs) Though we may feel like we are, he never is. The people of God, through troubled circumstances and how things look down here, must remember the throne of heaven, whose, pers- whose perspective is never darkened, never troubled, and never unfocused. Right? God is never looking through a veil. God is never looking through a glass dimly. Now, the overall point here is something quite striking. There is comfort in the fact that the Lord has returned the evil of Nabal upon his own head. Right? I, I, this, is, this happened uh, last year. It is not good to necessarily rejoice over the destruction of the wicked, but I am glad that Ruth Bader Ginsburg stood before the, the true and living God. She was an evil judge, and she stood before the judge, and that comforts me. That gives me a great deal of comfort for what's going on right now, because right, whatever your your situation is here, we will all of us stand before the living God. We will stand before the judge. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head, David says to himself, and he's comforted as if he puts on a warm blanket. And why? Because God, back in Genesis 3.15, promised to be a head-cracking savior. That's what he promised to do. And look, Nabal has had, like a stone, has had his evil come upon his own head. God is a skull-crushing savior. That's what he does. That's who he is. Just as the exiles need to hear it, David needs to be reminded that God has not abandoned his people nor forgotten his promises. Do you need to hear the same message? Do you need to be reminded that God has not actually abandoned us and that he does, in fact, remember his promises? Yahweh is refreshing the wearied David slack for a moment in his vigilance of faith due to his crushing circumstances. Right? He's in the wilderness, he's hungry, he's isolated, he's persecuted, and he's on trial. We can understand, as I said earlier, we can have mercy for him because we understand what it is to be pressed upon by every side and forget ourselves for a moment. As I said last week, right? David hears the insults, and the first thing he says is, um, like, let's go, lock and load, everybody. We are going to go down there, and we're going to kill everyone. And I don't know about you, but in the last two years, I've heard a number of news things, in which my reaction was, everyone get your guns. It's time. I was born for this moment. Do you need guns? I got guns I can share with you. Because what happens when we're pressed upon every side is this, right? It's a joke that I've been telling for years. Canned goods and shotgun shells, that's all we need. It's very easy to forget who's in charge. It's very easy to forget there is a plan. It's very easy to forget that someone's in control of all of this. And so we want to take control ourselves. And some of us want to do it with a gun. Some of us want to do it with a sword. But those who live by such things die by such things. Now, I'm not a preacher of pacifism, but this reaction of David is the thing that we have got to avoid as the people of God. Right? Please, don't let me come over to your house for dinner and see that you're filling sandbags. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not pointing a finger at anyone in particular. Now David had let Nabal get, get to him, and he set out to avenge himself like the kings of the world to take the food that was denied from him, to take the vengeance that he's owed. And what did Samuel say back in chapter 8 about what a king would do? He would be a taker. He would take things. Samuel warned that kings would take their young men and take young women as servants and soldiers, that he would take the best fields and the best orchards and the best vineyards, that he would take a tenth of their crops, because evil kings take That's what it means in Philippians when Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves that Jesus didn't think uh, uh, equality with God was something to be grasped. It's not something to be taken. The Lord gives, and you open your hands and receive. Taking is not allowed in the kingdom of God. Now, here in the Garden of Engedi, confronted by the snake Nabal, David nearly fell by taking what was forbidden, just like Adam did. He almost became a judgment upon Israel, even as he brought judgment down upon his head. That's what was at risk. But through Abigail, Abigail, right? <laughs> Savior from a skirt, Yahweh turns away David's wrath and calls him back to faithfulness. Lady Wisdom shows up on the scene to David and speaks these words from Proverbs 20, chapter 20, or chapter 20 verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. That summarizes Abigail's speech. Don't do this, David. God will avenge you. Now, Abigail's argument was that David must refrain from taking vengeance precisely because God would not refrain from taking vengeance. 1 Samuel 25, 29. This is what Abigail had to say. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And the crushing of Nabal's head, as Christ said in Luke chapter 7, verse 35, wisdom is justified by her children. Lady Wisdom here appears. She tells David, don't do this because this is what the Lord is going to do. And she's justified by events. This is the prophetic, right? The prophetic voice is justified by what occurs. This is how you know whether it's truly the prophetic voice or not. Abigail reassures David, exhorts him in his assurance of faith. She isn't just feeding him with good food; she's feeding his heart. She's nurturing his body and his soul. In verse twenty-nine, it says it mentions that, that he will be found bound in the bundle of the living. That's the Old Testament way of saying that he will be found in the book of life. It says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, David, you will be found in the bundle of the living. You will be found in the book of life. She's she's reassuring, right, not just his political ambitions, but she's reassuring him in his faith, in his hope, in the final end, the final product, the telos of all things. You will reside with the living in heaven with God if you turn from this path. Her argument is God's character. She knows, as it says in Isaiah 34, 8, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. For the cause of Zion, there is a day of recompense coming. Abigail's humble appeal for David to remain faithful is very needed. It's very much needed by David. We see through this whole section, chapters 18 through 23, there are 12 instances in which God has to come and save David. No wonder he's tired of it. And yet, why does he forget it? Why does he need Abigail to come and remind him of it? He, from, eight, from chapter 18 to 23, a very lengthy period of time, 12 times the Lord delivers him. And yet, when he, he receives the insults of Nabal, he feels as it's, it's his responsibility to avenge his name. How easily we forget the long history of God's faithfulness to us. He hears the insults, hungry, abandoned in the wilderness. David's rational theological mind is twisted with self-concern, self-determination, self-satisfaction, with reviling hatred. How much more news is it going to take for you before you make this kind of decision? Are you at your wits' end? Right now, are are you sitting down with your family, and the thing you're discussing over the food that God provided is all of the times that he saved you from chapters 18 to 23? Or are you sitting down and you, you would not believe what Nabal said this time? What about what God said, David? What about what God said? Now, how often in your home are you discussing what Inslee said versus what God said? That's a trick question. Please don't honestly answer it. We'll have to go back and, and repent again like we did at the start of the service. We all too easily forget. Now David resembles here Israel in the wilderness more than Christ in the wilderness. And this is where the veil is lifted and we see that David isn't actually the promised son who's going to save mankind because he clearly has feet of clay. And, and we're reminded here of something that Paul says in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not exasper, exasperate your children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. David is pretty exasperated at this moment. Right? He's looking down from heaven and he sees, whoa, oh man, he snapped. He's having a tantrum. Interlady wisdom. Right? What, what would calm a, an angry soldier down? A beautiful woman with food and wise words. What calms most men down? I'll be honest Beautiful women <laughs> with wise words and good food. Yahweh sends Abigail to not only restrain David, but to encourage, comfort, and nurture him in his faith and faithfulness. 1 Samuel twenty five twenty eight. This is what Abigail says. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. That's her comfort to him. Don't grow weary, David, in what you're doing because you're fighting for the Lord. She's preserving the household of Nabal. That's why she went out there. And she's saying to him, certainly God will make a house for you. This woman is a homemaker. And do you notice that none of it here has to do with vacuuming? Right? We say homemaker, what do we mean? Well, we pretty much mean a maid. Right? Right? That's what we mean. What, what is a modern home? Well, I'm just a homemaker. Oh, okay, so you just fold socks. Cool. Or are you this kind of homemaker? It's not about whether we're going to fight, it's how. And are you this kind of Abigail, or are you just a maid? Ladies, men, are your wives this kind of Abigail, or are they just maids? Right? They make sure that the checks go out on time. They make sure the kids got their homework done. They're just there checking boxes to make sure stuff gets done. How often are they nurturing your soul? Ladies, how often are you nurturing your husband's soul? Honey, I hear what you're saying about work, and let's forget what Inslee said for a minute. Let's talk about what the Lord said. And you have, right? Lady wisdom is what David needs in his struggle. And and God came down and saw Adam and said, it's not good he's alone. What he needs is Eve. What he needs is an Abigail. What he needs is a woman who's going to be a homemaker who doesn't just provide excellent homemade bread, but is able to feed his wearied soul. See, David learns the lesson, right? He learns the lesson that Abigail's teaching him. He says in Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That was her message to him. Now, ladies, is that your message to your world-wearied husband? Stop trying to build this house yourself. Appeal to heaven, obey God, and he will build it. That's your go- the gospel, ladies, to your men. That's the gospel you should be preaching in your house. They may want to talk about what Nabal said, but you ought to be the one who comes and reminds them of what the Lord said. Now, this homemaking, this is her glory. Abigail proves to be a faithful sister in Christ to David. And young men, this is the kind of sister who loves God more than men that you ought to be looking for. Young ladies, this is the kind of worthy sister that makes a worthy bride. Abigail is proving to be the kind of woman a man ought to make his wife, if he can. <laughs> Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Now, this is exactly what God has arranged. He's, he's got a king, and the king needs wisdom, and so he provides lady wisdom. 1 Samuel 25, 39 through 40. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take to him as his wife. Now what we see here is actually, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, Wedding customs are largely the same from Genesis to the epistles in the New Testament. There's not a lot of difference in sort of how the process works. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends a servant to get a, a wife for his son. He doesn't send his son. He sends servants to go get right friends of the bridegroom to go and get the bride and bring her back. These wedding attendants play a crucial role in Christ's day. He continually talks about them in his parables, especially in Matthew chapter 25. If you look there, he talks about these wedding attendants. It's also, uh, shockingly, how the apostles understood their role in the church. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul sees his responsibility as, as the servant in, in Abraham's day who goes and gets the bride and brings her to Jesus. Right, That's a different kind of evangelism, isn't it? Somebody write that book. I'm not going to do it. I don't have time. <laughs> Friend of the bridegroom evangelism. In our own day, this is why when I, when I do weddings, I'm always very clear about this. The husband, the man who's getting married comes in first, and the whole wedding party brings the bride to him. Because that's what, in the Bible, it's always described as. The friends of the, of the bridegroom go and get the wife and bring her to him. Now, this is what David's emissaries have done. How is she going to respond, right? <laughs> she had this tangle with him. Now her husband's dead. She just inherited all of his wealth. She's alone. What is she going to do to this this appeal, right? I mean, I bet she's still wearing black. And here comes David's emissaries asking uh, for her to be his bride. Well, it says in 1 Samuel uh, 41 to 42, And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now, Abigail's humility continues to recommend her. Proverbs 25, 6 through 7 says this, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, Come up here than to, put, uh, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Right she didn't, say, she didn't go to him after her husband died and said, "Hey, remember me." Matthew chapter 23, verse 10 and 11, "The greatest among you shall be your servant." Now Abigail assumes here the role of a foot-washing slave. Now, how humble is this woman? Does she need David? Right? He lives in the wilderness. She just inherited Nabal's extraordinarily wealthy estate. Does she need David? Uh, from one right, from a real serious perspective, economic perspective, David, take a hike, dude. Why would I give up this palace to live in a cave with you? But that's not a response. Her response is, "I will come and wash your servants' feet." Right? Like I'm trying to imagine my, like um, the guy who comes and fixes our heater in our house. I'm trying to imagine my wife washing his feet, and that insults me. That does. If he asks that, he doesn't get to come back. (laughs) If she asks that, he doesn't get to come back. (laughs) She would rather go to his house and wash his servants' feet than remain in her position that she has. Why? What does this tell us about marriage? What does this tell us about men like David and women like Abigail? What does it tell us Right, is greater than earthly wealth? What's... What's fascinating here is that she is a picture of Jesus in this story, right? We always, I think, just as like I was saying last week, women tend to think, right, you go to the book of Isaiah, and you have God, the Father, speaking to a prophet, a man, and he's giving a prophecy about the Messiah, a man. And sometimes I imagine, and I hear women talk about the fact that Christianity sounds like a conversation between the boys. The men, the boys are talking. And I'm just sort of here, (laughs) not really sure what to make the whole thing. And don't you often think, when you think of typologically the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, aren't they all men? Well, no. No, here's Abigail. She would rather wash his servant's feet than continue as this rich, wealthy, single woman. And it reminds us of this from John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, like her Lord, Abigail's humility is pure and true and shocking. Unlike the rancid feminism of today that seeks to take a place at the head of the table, Abigail, a true, godly, biblical woman, sees it would be better to be a foot washer in the house of David than live apart from him. And that is the gospel. Ladies, gentlemen, that is a picture of what should be our love for the Lord God. I would rather live in your house washing your servants' feet than be a great lady on my own. I would rather be a servant in your house than to live in the tents of the evil and the wicked. Now, further demonstrating her humility, it's quite... <laughs> she, she comes riding to him on a donkey, which is a royal symbol. Donkeys um, are royal symbols because if you're, you're not a conquering king. Conquering kings, worldly kings, ride on horses. In in, in Jewish culture, a king, a real king, rides on a donkey because he brings shalom. He doesn't need a war horse. So she's riding on a donkey. The only other people who do that, really, are, are typically royal figures. If they're Jews and they're riding on a donkey, it's a symbol of a king or queen. And not only that, she has five attendants. No woman in the Old Testament has that many attendants. And yet she would still rather be a foot washer in David's house than be the great lady. Right? I think that would play well on CNN. I don't think World Magazine or Time Magazine would take this up as an article as like, this is how we ought to be in our day. Now, what is going on here? There's actually something important. She comes on the scene as Lady Wisdom. And David needs to pursue Lady Wisdom because he's not very smart. (laughs) He's not very wise. He's not very prudent. This is something that Christians in our day need to learn in order to understand verses like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Many of us do not understand the women we live with because we do not understand wisdom. We do not understand wisdom because we do, not li- we do not treat wisdom like a woman. Throughout the book of Proverbs, a book teaching wisdom to young men, wisdom appears as a woman. Wisdom is personified as a noble lady who one should pursue. Such as in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called Blessed. Now, is, is that how we think of wisdom? Is that how you think of your wife? Lady wisdom is contrasted with Lady Folly throughout the book of Proverbs, especially chapter 7, and the whole book leads to a description of wisdom ultimately as a wife, Proverbs 31. Not all the aspects of Lady wisdom are applicable directly to a man's wife, but many of them are. For example, Lady wisdom is an instructor, a school marm ready to wrap our knuckles, Proverbs 1, 20 through 25, reproaching us for uh, tracking mud in the house for our foul language and our coarse manners. I'm a much more pleasant person because I've had to learn how to control this bad boy around my wife, just her. Then we added six kids. That's what I call sanctification, right? I don't usually track mud in the house. I don't have that kind of job. (laughs) But I do come in with some filthy talk, right? And, And Lady Wisdom causes us to be polite gentlemen. That's what she teaches us. That's what our wives teach us. Lady wisdom instructs boys in how to be men, how to take the initiative and bear responsibility. The man who pursues wisdom should learn to sit up straight and use his inside voice. (laughs) Don't put your feet on the table. Stop shouting. Right? Don't throw the football in the house. I've actually had to be told that more times with my kids. Attaining wisdom requires a teachable spirit. Wisdom is pursued in humility. Lady Wisdom is a wealthy patroness who invites us to a feast. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. A man who pursues wisdom ought to act like he is invited to a banquet at the palace of a fine lady. I'd like to say this. Men, that is your home. You've provided it for them to, to build up for you, but you are an honored guest there. Your wife ought to be the queen of that place. And when she says, take your shoes off, you ought to listen. Why? Because, right, you're, you're pursuing lady wisdom who's instructing you how not to be an animal. Right? Darwinism makes a lot of sense to most of us, but it's it's like what I call men, typically, man culture is the opposite of Darwinism. We were men and we're slowly becoming beasts. Right? And unless Abigail intervenes, that's what happens to a lot of us. We should enter our homes as if we were invited, not eat like uh, we were raised in a barn, not rejoice in what is sir. But rejoice in what is served, while rejoicing in the wisdom that comes alongside bread and wine. Right? When you're sitting there at the dinner table, is that your opportunity to be refreshed by lady wisdom like Abigail refreshed David? Or is it that your opportunity because you have an audience now who's going to hear how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how awesome you were at work? And she's going to hear all about your problems. She's going to hear all about the people who are stupid at work. She's going to hear about all the stupid stuff you have to deal with. Or when you come home to sit down at dinner, is that your opportunity to be refreshed by Abigail? Like, listen, I was out in the wilderness, and I'm about to slaughter some eyeballs, baby. So could you please just sit down and feed me some good food and talk to me with some wisdom, some reason? And, you know, she's probably been with kids all day. She, she probably wouldn't mind a little reasonable talk, to. <laughs> yes. Lady Wisdom is a sexually attractive woman and should be sought as any sensible suitor would court a beautiful and intelligent woman. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Sister is meant in the same way as Song of Solomon 4.9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now, doesn't this describe David's response to Abigail? She came as a worthy sister. And now he says, yes, you are now... Right, Not just my sister in the Lord, but you're going to be my beautiful wife. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to take Lady Wisdom into my house, and I'm going to grow up now. You know what I need in the wilderness, because I'm making, starting to make bad decisions, is Lady Wisdom. Come out into the wilderness with us, and maybe we'll have some carpets in the tent. Maybe we'll have some, like, some educated talk at dinner time. Right, I can stop eating with my fingers <laughs> and talking about how much I hate Nabal. A man is instructed by Solomon to pursue and marry this woman and is instructed to be faithful to her. She is a precious treasure, never to be forsaken. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth, do not forsake her, and she will keep, her, keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The Bible says wisdom is a woman to be approached with a rose, with a sonnet, or both. If we want to obey Peter and live with our wives with an understanding way, we must think biblically, we must think like David, we must recognize Abigail when she comes and pursue her like we would a beautiful woman worthy of pursuit, a woman worthy of listening to, a woman worthy to sit at table with. Modern men have a false conception of wisdom that leads to little understanding about the world in which we actually live. No wonder we don't understand our wives, no wonder we don't recognize the uh, and struggle to raise Abigails in our own homes. We see when David struggles to be content with his high and holy calling, right? He's got Lady Wisdom now. And, and, is, and she, what kind of effect is she going to have? She going, right? this, this is We're going to look behind the curtain here. And David has this opportunity to bring Lady Wisdom into his home and become the greatest king who ever lived. But what is he going to do with Lady Wisdom? He's going to do with Lady Wisdom what many of us do when we attain Lady Wisdom. Even though he's got her in the house, he's going to sow seeds of the, the destruction of his own household. Why? Because of the simple principle. If one is more, or if one is good, two is better. That's, it's, a, right? You want to talk about ethics 101? What's most of our problem is this. If one is good, two is better. So he's got lady wisdom, and he must be thinking, to himself: you know what's better than one lady wisdom is two lady wisdoms. Right? I'll be twice as smart. First Samuel 25, 43 to 44. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Paltai, the son of Lahish, who was in Gollum. It's just, it's just a little verse right at the end. He goes through all of this nonsense with Nabal. He's delivered by Abigail. He brings her into his house, and then right at the end, by the way, he's multiplying wives. Right? I mean, one's good. Two must be better. Marrying Nabal's widow gave David a legitimate claim to his position and wealth. He has this, it's, it's strategically important, and I think this is what leads him astray. You know what? This marriage was good for me politically. This marriage was good for me strategically, so why don't I keep doing it? I'll marry that one over there, and I'll get that land. I'll, I'll make an alliance with that tribe over there by taking that one. Not content with the godly wife that God gave him, David, contrary to the law, is multiplying wives. It says in Deuteronomy 17:17, 17, 17, The king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Don't acquire many wives. And so far, David has been following the law, right? He has a heart after God, and here we see early on, right? We're not even to the end of 1 Samuel. We see what's going to destroy him in 2 Samuel. You can't take one part of your life, devote it to the Lord Jesus, and call it everything. The same self-control he had and not slaughtering Saul, he fails to have when it comes to how many wives he has. I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I just act like, hope like, you know, self-control is this thing that sort of spreads naturally. If I demonstrate a little bit of self-control over here with this brownie, maybe I won't spend that 50 bucks I don't have at Fred Meyer later. You know what doesn't work? is that, right, just because I can, (laughs) what's always really funny is, especially me, when I'm like, man, that was a lot of self-control I just demonstrated, I go out, and I double down, and I'm like half, half as much self-control the next time, like, I I get all worked up in my mind, and then I go out, and I was like, I didn't demonstrate any self-control just now at all, because we're like this, we're like, oh, yeah, self-control, watch how much self-control I have, I didn't kill Saul, I didn't do it, he was right there, Going to the bathroom. I could have killed him, and I didn't do it. I'm so, so much self-control. Hey, ladies. <laughs> By the time David becomes king in Hebron, he has six sons with six women. Right? I mean, this is like an episode of Cops. <laughs> Baby mama trouble all over the hood. The sin of David has enormous ramifications for Israel's future. David has not averted entirely the wicked king's desire to take. By the time of the Bathsheba episode, David has cultivated the habit of taking whatever woman attracts him and adding her to his collection. He had begun to take, and why not take Bathsheba also, as he will in 2 Samuel 11? Further, David's sons all follow his example. He demonstrates a behavior, and lo and behold, his sons learn it. Amnon, his son, takes Tamar against her will in 2 Samuel 13. Absalom, the rebel, takes David's harem up on the rooftop in broad daylight. Solomon took 1,000 wives and concubines. How did he have the energy to write proverbs, I want to know. (laughs) This taking of women, this unrepentant lack of self-control, is taught to his sons. It sets the example, and the boys follow it. They're like, oh, look at dad, I can do better than that. All the Old Testament characters who are lesser Jesuses are the antitype to the Lord. David, given all his qualities, has feet of clay. He is not sinless. Indeed, David is is not serving him, or he is serving himself, retaining an area in his life for his own satisfaction and not submitting it to the Lord. Right. This whole series is called the stump of Jesse. How, why is it that we needed to cut the tree down and start something fresh? Well, it's it's right there in this throwaway verse at the end of twenty five. He's multiplying wives. And then what's going to happen? That heart that he had after God is going to be led astray. Now, C.S. Lewis said this, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. They could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. David was seeking something other than God-ordained marital happiness. For David, marriage was marred by politics and lust and greed, displays of power, and his lack of self-control leads to his and several of his sons' downfalls. He is he's building his own house according to his own desires, and that house can't stand. Right? The Lord's not building it. Unlike David, Jesus has but one bride, and she isn't a prop in some stupid political game. Jesus is fulfilling his marital vows to her as her faithful husband, Ephesians five twenty-five 25-27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus requires as the model for marriage in the church, 1 Timothy 3.2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The Lord builds our house his way. This is done through one woman, men who pursue lady wisdom, an intimate companion, who nurtures and feeds a man's body and soul as he washes and beautifies her according to God's word. That's how he builds his kingdom. That's how he builds your house. That's how he builds his house one man, one woman, one lifetime, one hope, one faith, one baptism. It's this unity of purpose to which he calls all he brings all these things in and that's the kingdom he's building. That's the temple for himself in which he dwells. David fell into the trap that many of us do. Right? What's better than a $20 bill? Right, I got sons now. They're working hard. They're making a lot of money. And what I find funny is every time I give them a twenty dollar bill, you know what almost always happens? The same thing their dad does. Man, I like this twenty. I should get more of them. The only thing better than a twenty dollar bill is a fifty dollar bill. The only thing better than a fifty dollar bill is a hundred dollar bill. The only thing better than a hundred dollar bill is a check for five hundred. What's better than a gallon of unpasteurized milk? Two gallons of unpasteurized milk. What's better than a steak sandwich? A steak sandwich and onion rings and a shake, right? I have literally eaten has been eating a steak sandwich, which I do love, and thought, you know, what's missing is onion rings. And my wife's like, really, <laughs> really, yeah, because I mean, this is good, you know, and make it better is more. What's better than a good-looking woman? All the good-looking women. We will turn anything and everything into this game. We struggle when more doesn't come. Binge-watching one more episode. Anybody done this recently? Just one more, baby. Just one more. It'll be fine. Just one more. What time is it? Two? It's fine. Just one more. (laughs) Well, now there's only two left in the season, so we might as well just finish the season. (laughs) Right? Next thing you know, the kids are getting up. (laughs) Not all my stories are just made up. More beer, more security, more happiness, more peace, more sunshine. The only thing better than a little is more of the same. We struggle with this largely um, because it actually is true. right? This is one of those things where God kind of gets us a little bit. You know what's better than running one mile? Running two miles. I don't know personally, but I've heard. (laughs) What's better than two push-ups? Twelve. Right. I mean, we all understand this. If you're a father and a husband, and you've got kids in a household, you know what's better than $1,000 a month? $2,000 a month. This is really true. And so something that's true like this, right? Lady wisdom is worthy of pursuit. So why wouldn't two lady wisdoms be worthy of pursuit? We struggle with portion size. Welcome to America. That's it right there. Supersize it right? Supersize it. I can't believe I order food at a restaurant and they ask me what size I wanted. I don't (laughs) like, and I'm just like normal size. I don't know. Do they ask everyone that or just guys that look like me? I actually don't know. (laughs) Oh, you have bigger meals, like you have bigger shirts. Oh, okay. If you want to know what gets you shopping at the extra large store, it's when they say supersize you and you say yes. Okay. Now look at your own home. Look at your own home. Look at how many cars you have and how much money you have and how much food you have. Look at how many lady wisdoms you have, right? Look at how big your harem is because these days it's very easy to have a digital harem, right? The e-harem, I call it. I can have a 1,000 ladies at my fingertips all the time. Oh, I got quiet in here. No, certainly we're not like David, right? What's better than one? More. What's better, Right? What's, <laughs> What's better than one blonde hair? All my hair is being blonde. And let me get this dye now. And I'm going to color, color my, we live in this age where we color our hair. And like, f- that's like the girl version of, like, that's a thing I don't understand. I never understood it. But like, well, God made that natural color. It's gorgeous. Why would you change it? Oh, it's gray now. Like, I can't wait for my wife to have silver hair. I'm looking so forward to that. Why is it we have a trouble with portion size? And we will turn anything into a portion size problem right? If this is good, more is better. And we, like, this is the thing nobody wants to talk about. We'll talk about Ensley, We'll talk about mandates. We'll talk about vaccines. We'll talk about masks, right? We'll talk about gun rights. We'll talk about the constitution, but how are you doing with your portion size, right? Everybody suddenly is like, whoa, slow the roll, Mike, okay? Let's not get too carried away with this prophetic voice thing, like, go back to asking questions about what's going on outside, because we, we, we couldn't possibly have a portion size problem, could we? <laughs> you know it's better than a little bit of government, more government? We've been saying that for like 150 years, and now we're like, oh, no, it's not better. Because we have this insatiable desire in our heart for more than what God provides. And as Augustine said, we're not going to be content with anything until we're content in him. Right? It's not like, and this is, I I, I deal with all kinds of problems like this with people, with myself. It's like, listen, I don't even want to talk about the problem we have. Like, this is the thing, how it's manifesting itself. You want more of this, and it's not good for you, and it's hurting you, and now you're here with me. Let's just talk about the fact, is God enough for you? Right? Take away your freedom. Take away your ability to have a medical choice. Take away everything. Is God enough for you? If that's all you had, would that be enough? Our problem is a portion size problem. Our problem is the problem of, if one is good, more is better. And here we are. And we want to talk about a lot of things, but not how content our own hearts are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the anecdote or sorry not the anecdote this is the antidote right this is the cure this is what it says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 not that i am speaking of being in need for i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content that's what paul said now does everyone remember our friend paul and what he endured between shipwrecks and stoning between being hunted down being a, right maligned Hebrews 13 5 keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you or forsake you now in the coming months this is the question you have to ask because things are going to be they're going to start taking things away even more than you could possibly imagine if you've read any history books at all and this is my question no matter what they take from you is having Jesus Christ enough no matter what comes. Ecclesiastes 9 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And you don't live in 1850. You don't live in 1776. You don't live in 1935. You live in 2021, here and now. That's your portion. Sitting next to you is the spouse, spouse he gave you. The portion size is the portion size. Are you content in the Lord, or are you focused on the portion size? 2 Corinthians 12.9. You could go home, write this on a card. Put it on your fridge. And when you're at dinner and, you want to, and, and somebody wants to talk about what Inslee said, somebody wants to talk about what all the thousands of Nabals are saying, I want you to get this card out and I want you to read it to one another. And ladies, after this sermon, I'm specifically giving you the task. Bring it to him and say, read this to us. 2 Corinthians 12.9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then I want you to go around the table and give thanks for what you're weak at. Give thanks for your need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a people who does that will be a people who are satisfied with the portion that the Lord has given them. They will stop worrying about that and they will be more concerned about how to be obedient in it. Because that's what you need. That's what I need. That's what this church needs. That's what the world needs. Go home and consider how you are doing with portion size. Repent of what needs repenting and turn to the Lord Jesus and, and consider who he is. The long history of all that he's done for you. Remember who he is and be content with who he is. And that that way, you will be content with what he's doing. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Abigail and David. We thank you for Lady Wisdom. We thank you, Lord God, for for the word of God that gives us understanding and explains to us who you are, who we are, and what we are enduring. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, and amen.